Hi and welcome back to part 4. If you've just tuned in, I'm Danny Hill, the monk on a motorbike. And today my guest is Daniel Ingram, who caused a storm some time ago when he announced he was an Arahat or fully enlightened. This is a long interview so please feel free to stop and start. There are show notes with an outline of what we're talking about and when on my website www.monkonamotorbike.com. If you've got any questions or feedback for myself or Daniel, please feel free to get in touch. My email is also on the website. Breaking convention. You yeah. went to at the weekend, psychedelics. I, I'm I did. intrigued to hear a bit more about this and what your take is on psychedelics. And Well, so first let me talk about breaking convention. Sure. Um, so, uh, uh, let's see here. Those are the closest allies in the world of people who are trying to bring altered experiences and the phenomenology to the mainstream, trying to normalize weird stuff, right? Trying to normalize stuff in a scientific materialist literature, trying to normalize that altered states may be okay and not just all crazy or pathological. And so they're by far my closest allies in this research world. There's an unbelievable amount of overlap. So a lot of these people are meditators. A lot of these people have had experiences even when not on psychedelics. A lot of these, you know, where it's true that some people get into meditation because of psychedelics, other, you know, people get into psychedelics because of the stuff that happened in meditation. And it goes back way. So there's this like a lot of overlap and crosstalk. A lot of spiritual experiences can be induced by psychedelics. They have some similar dangers. In fact, maybe like a few more, right? So like maybe a little more edgy sometimes, a little more dangerous sometimes, but in general, not that dangerous unless you're in a bad context. Right, there's literature on this, right? I don't mean to like say everybody should go out and do psychedelics. That's definitely not true, um, I think. Uh, but you know, um, there are people who get some benefits from these. Some people just have weird experiences and come down. Some people have hard trips or bad trips or whatever you want to call them. Some people do some damage, right? So that's the other thing. But that can happen with meditation as well. I, I know, I know plenty retreats, of people yeah. who like on retreats or even like you know, not daily life practice, manage to cook themselves, right, and really hurt themselves and do damage, right? I've so seen it's, it too, yeah. it's not like this stuff's all safe either. Right, and so they're by far my closest allies, and they're decades ahead of the world of high-end meditation. Decades ahead, right? So the vast majority of people are way more likely to believe powerful, transcendent experiences might have occurred to people when they took a mushroom or drank some bitter jungle root mixture or whatever, you know, than you know, got into this on their own power. So plenty of people think the genres are not real. I know neuroscience researchers who literally think the genres are not real. Like this is, we're all just making this stuff up because they've never gotten into it. The stuff isn't true. Like it's the kind of arrogance you see. It's really annoying, but they believe, oh yeah, you give some people some mushrooms, they trip balls for a while. They believe that. So like, and these people actually have conventions. We don't have conventions. They have funding and research institutes. They, they have real departments that are studying the high-end wildness rather than just basic mindfulness, like low-level kindergarten meditation stuff. Like in multiple departments, major departments and major universities, they have positions. We don't have all that stuff. There's a few researchers who are studying the high-end sporadically with just a few studies 
like of real deep jhana of you know you know but even like the notion of like studying awakening like really seriously like we don't see that in the journals like nobody's got balls that big yet you know <laughs> like not to use a purely masculine metaphor so forgive me but you know hopefully it conveys a point sorry about that anyway but like you get what i'm saying like they, it's just not happening and that those conversations are barely happening they happen in back rooms i, I literally know like 15 or 20 people in major universities with major positions who are awake to some degree and will not talk about it in an academic context. They talk about it in muffled tones to their closest friends, would never say at a department meeting, would never research from that place, aren't going to talk from that place because it could be career ending. Like, whereas there are plenty of people who are openly researching psychedelics, you know, and getting big funding for this, like from, you know, welcome, you know, people and other foundations and, um, and like, there are trusts set up to study this stuff. There's maps. They're decades ahead of us. These people like meet with the military and they meet with high-end government officials. Like they're they're far beyond the world of high-end meditation. Like, and so like I'm trying to learn from these people how to language it, how to message it, how to get it into the literature, how to get it normalized, how to have conventions, how to organize. Right? Because we suck in comparison to the tripsters. Right, like <laughs> it's just a straight-up fact. Like you know, they they got us. They're they're lapping us by miles, right? And so like that's embarrassing, right? Because you'd think this stuff, like the pedestrian stuff, where you're doing it on your own power, using well-respected techniques, you know, from monks and monasteries and stuff. It, yeah. You'd think we'd have that. We don't have any of that stuff in comparison, right? So like, there's mind and life, which is sorry, I've just <laughs> alienated two hundred people who I need to make my allies or whatever. <laughs> but it's it's not that, right? It's not the high end. It's it's not this stuff. It's not the deep stuff. It's it's, and so normalizing the stuff, getting the stages of insight out there, getting the deep jhana tech out there, you know, getting reasonable studies of this stuff, and getting even just reasonable ways to talk about it and frame it, and even making it okay for researchers to even admit they have insights. We're still not there yet. Whereas it is okay in some places for researchers to admit they've done entheogens or that they study this stuff. And so I'm unbelievably, like, appreciatively envious, like, want to learn from these people. Like, how are they doing it? And there are also some natural allies there. So some of these people have interest in studying consciousness itself, and they're using psychedelics to do that, but they're more interested in consciousness. That's just the tool they have, right? And they would be happy to study people who are doing high-end meditation, getting into some really wild territory. Right, and so that's where I was this afternoon, talking with someone who's interested in that, and that's my conversation tomorrow night with somebody at Harvard will be about that, you know, and like, you know, I've got like, you know, so there are these people. It's just we're this ragtag fugitive fleet, you know, or to use a you know, old Battlestar Galactica analogy in comparison to like, you know, the psychedelic people that are vastly more established. These people get literally multi-million-dollar grants. They get, they have serious donors. They, they, they get. Like they have stuff we just dream of. And so I'm trying to figure out how to catch up, how to build relationships, how to learn from what they've been able to accomplish um, and how to figure out how to apply that to what we do. And and so I'm hopeful, but it's going to take a long time because they've got they started the stuff, building the stuff back up in the 80s, you know, and they were they already had literally like thousands of studies from the 50s and 60s and into the early mid 70s that showed good effects. So if you haven't read How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan, you can read all about this stuff. And 
and so it was just a question of sort of dusting off this research and going, oh my golly, this stuff can help with addiction, this stuff can help with trauma, this stuff can help with how to well, change your mind. How to change your mind by Michael Pollan. It's highly recommended. But when you read that, you'll realize why I'm so jealous of this stuff because now there's like a major book about the entheogens that's like gotten wildly popular, that's changing culture. And we have nothing like that for the world of high end meditation. It's mentioned a few times in that book and a few other places. But really, even in the major journals of mindfulness, even the major journals like Tricycle, they don't talk about this stuff, right? Like, you think we have it established. No, like we don't. And so I feel like um, I'm like one small dissenting voice, like screaming, hey, come on, let's get some attention. Let's get this thing going. But please, like, can we get ourselves together, our act together? The tripsters are lapping us, really? Really? Like, <laughs> and yes, the answer is they really are truly by leaps and bounds yeah we're nothing so so i you know i'm i'm happy sound right right it? I, I know it's nothing against the tripsters like there's some cool exactly, people there's absolutely. value in this yeah, stuff absolutely. sometimes yeah. right in the right context yeah. right setting cool like read the book like yeah. like and so like i'm i'm there to learn from the masters because i'm clearly me and my friends and my colleagues in this business we're novices and they're not Right, and I can recognize mastery and competence when I see it, and I want to make these connections and see how they're doing it, how they're talking about it, and and how they're being successful in ways we simply aren't. In fact, we're going backwards. Like you know, late I haven't been to mine in life, but latest rumors are that sort of the world I talk about and the stuff I talk about and do and routinely experience and have found you know taught other people how to do and been taught by other people how to do and shared and, and the journey of like that's getting even less and less good press at mine and life apparently recently. What's mine and life? Mind and Life is this sort of, it was started by the Dalai Lama and some neuroscience, neurophenomenology researchers to try to bring some research to the world of meditation. But like the stuff I talk about and do, like is becoming more and more taboo there, less and less respectable. I don't know how the Vedantists or the Vajrayana Mahayana kids are winning the, their political battle or whatever, right? Because everybody's fighting for their own little piece of the pie or their, their dominance of the conversation, but we're losing, right? And, and so like, you know, trying to figure out how to kind of balance that out again and go, no, there's some cool tech here. There's some real things here. And so my goal is to fight fire with data, basically, and say, no, I'm going to get the data. I'm going to develop these things. We're going to do the research. I'm going to find the ways to get the money. Um, we're going to find the case studies. We're going to publish this stuff and, and try to get this out there and, and fight the way science has fought for a long time, which is still, you know, there's still you have to deal with like reviewers that might be from some different tradition than yours. And so give your journal article a bad review or, you know, they want to control the language or terminology or they published a paper that contradicts what you say. And so they, they'll like try to, you know, stop. You still have to deal with all that shit. Right. But I'm willing to fight the fight just like they are and hopefully mobilize some other people like who I know know, right? I know people who know this stuff and they're in positions of academia, but they're not willing to talk about it. And so just like with the Arhat thing, you know, in the spiritual world, now I'm trying to do kind of the same thing for the academic world. Say, come on, kids, come on. Like, we're all gonna be dead soon. Like, just get over it and just do, <laughs> be honest and like oh, yeah. speak from that place. Yeah. You know, break loose, come on. You know, it's, it's time, we can do this. There, Cause there's, you know, the, the, there's, it's a moment, like I think in history where if like the psychedelics and stuff are getting like major national press and good, good funding and stuff, like we should be able to do this too. So anyway, that's my... Did, did, did you make any connections at Breaking Convention? Yeah, that met a bunch of cool people. Brilliant, brilliant. Yeah, yeah, that was actually where I was this afternoon. Brilliant. With a, so, yeah. Did you, did you experiment with psychedelics at all on your path? Uh, so I've done mushrooms four times 
uh, one to sort of a light, sort of happy, funny dose, um, two doses where there was sort of a moderate amount more bliss and I got plugged into the mushroom mind. <laughs> Whatever, no, I'm sounding totally nuts and losing credibility with some people. Sorry, <laughs> whatever. I don't have the sense to be dishonest about this stuff, right? So at least you can appreciate that I'm pretty wide open, right? If nothing else. Um, okay, so whatever. And uh, like I, I did one dose of mushrooms that's powerful enough that I was at one point becoming a point particle four feet off the ground that could see in all directions and alternating between that for about a half hour sort of intermittently every minute or so between being the point particle and being a what I called an earth cat which is like about a like a 10 foot long gigantic brown panther thing on the ground and I was fully an earth cat like in mind in body in feeling in taste in smell in teeth, in everything. Like, as far as I could tell, I was completely an Earth cat. Kind of always had been an Earth cat, it seemed at the time. I don't know, like, that's a, so whatever high- Shamanic shape-shifting. So, yeah, yeah. So that's, a, that's a pretty high dose, right? Uh, I did what could only possibly be classified as a full-on overdose of ayahuasca. I won't go through the experience, but let's just say it was, it was way past anything good. I'll just stop there. Um, and I did salvia liquid oral. Uh, that was weird. Um, I don't know. Anyway, so that's it. So that's not a lot in comparison to a lot of my friends who have tripped vastly more than that. And most of the stuff I did kind of late, actually. Like, I only um, did mushrooms twice in my 20s. And uh, so, um, you know, so it's... it's it's funny, like, I occasionally get, like, asked in, like, public settings to, like, talk about, like, meditation and psychedelics, and I'll, like, say something like that, and then, like, say, okay, raise hands in the audience, who's done more psychedelics than me? And, like, two-thirds of the hands will go up. So I'm like, okay, I'm not your expert on this, right? I'm, I'm, I'm a novice, right? Some people are laughing, like, yeah, they've done acid a hundred times or whatever. Like, I, I seem like a total lightweight noob. And in that way, I kind of am, right? So, okay, but I've done them a few times, so I get the sense of kind of what they're about. Interesting, cool, okay. But they don't, they don't have much call for me. I'm not criticizing anybody they call to, because I know some people have gotten some real benefit out of them. Um, and gotten some power, you know, got to see some cool stuff and some powerful experiences. And I think in the right setting for the right person, sometimes, if you're lucky, it could be really good, um, like any of those things. And uh, so, uh, but it's fascinating to hang out uh, with the people who are studying these things because they're using a lot of the same tech, fMRI and EEG and first-hand reports and case series and, you know, uh, sort of linguistic analysis techniques and, and you know some physiological markers and and you know their their you know reproducibility and some stuff and they're trying to figure out like okay what do we do and and then you know applying psychometric testing and you know psychological testing and and various scales and stuff and they're trying to do really good science some of it not all of it's great but some of it's really good and that's the kind of good science I want to do on the high end meditation world so they're using the same techniques tricks I, I learn a lot of like things from their references, like some of the references of how to do just basic phenomenology is the same, right? So, and, and, and so it's, it's very, very close field. And so there's a lot I have to learn from them um, because they're ahead of us. And well, what's, what's their selling point? Why, why are people giving them shitloads of money basically? Yeah, and governments are saying it's okay to do this and they're decriminalizing it for certain situations, you know, like research situations and stuff. Yeah, because it's showing some real benefit, right? So it's, it's showing, I mean, I don't, you know, this is a literature I don't know, like, as an expert or anything. So um, I'm not going to, like, 
this is going to sound if, if you're a neuroscience you know psychedelic researcher i'm about to sound like an idiot you know but there's plenty of evidence for some cases of addiction for helping uh, depression and sometimes very untreatable depression for helping with stuff related to anxiety anxiety related to things related to death terminal illness um, some life transition stuff uh, increased ways to flexibly view situations therapeutic benefits um, ability to uh, you know tap into healing modalities and archetypal realms and Jungian stuff and all kinds of things uh, in ways that ordinary states of mind aren't as conducive to and in fact a lot of sort of the states of mind that people get into when they're really depressed can be so stuck in these ruminative channels they kind of get out can't get out of them and sometimes these sort of break them out into totally different ways of experiencing can create unbelievably profound transformations in spiritual experiences and benefits they also sometimes just totally trash people's brains or just people get high and nothing nothing obvious happens or whatever or they do some unbelievably stupid thing on them or whatever they just have fun and so what like so it's a range i'm not saying again like do your own research read arrowhead read how to change your mind make intelligent choices don't do illegal things i'm not just you know saying be an idiot but it is true that sometimes people get benefit and that's also true of the world of meditation particularly the world of high-end meditation and so um so that's the people i'm learning stuff from because again they're they have knowledge and skill sorry about the saw sounds so for whoever's drill listening from next door oh, drill or, or whatever yeah, anyway, yeah. yeah. So to, to what extent do you think I suppose the obvious thoughts of the psychedelics, you know, you're getting all those benefits, the same benefits as you get from meditation, but if you were a pharmaceutical company, you'd think, well, I could, I could package that and I could put that in a tablet and I could, yeah, I could sell that. Yeah, we're going to be up against there. that. And that was actually... Whereas meditation, so, you can't. So breaking convention, that was talked about a lot. Like these people who are going to monetize this, commercialize this, try to own the rights to this, try to be the only practitioners allowed to give this at high dollar you know, charging outrageous amounts of money for things you can pick up out of a cow patty, you know, for free, <laughs> if you know what you're doing. Um, you know, definitely know what you're doing if you're going and harvesting wild mushrooms, by the way, it's easy to hurt yourself or die. Absolutely. Anyway, particularly with the little brown mushrooms, uh, they're a dangerous bunch. Okay, so, um, so, but the point is that, that like, uh, you know that, that yes but that's gonna you know it is much harder to commercialize meditation it also takes a lot longer right whereas you can just you know smoke something and be there in a few seconds or eat something and be there in half an hour or whatever and um sorry we're gonna shut some windows and uh you know and so most people are gonna take that they don't have the time right this stuff i mean this stuff is expensive too right so to go on a meditation retreat um that's a little better. Yeah, the opportunity cost of going on a meditation retreat could be thousands of dollars, right? In lost lost work time, flights, vacation time, spent, you know, the cost of the facility, you know, donations to teachers or whatever, or whatever people are charging these days. You know, I some you know meditation teachers are charged over three hundred dollars an hour for, you know, or you know whatever. It's nuts. So like, it's not like this stuff's cheap either. Right. And so plenty of people are trying to commercialize mindfulness and meditation. It's a billion dollar a year industry and plenty of people saying, oh, my way is the best way. My expensive meditation program will get you enlightened the fastest. You know, give me two thousand dollars and I'll, you know, in eight weeks, give you a permanent, you know, non-symbolic experience or whatever. Yeah, like and so that's already totally happening. People are selling this stuff to corporations. They're selling it as like, you know, like so that's that that horse left the gate a long, long time ago. Um, and but you can still try to work with it as best you can. And the same is happening, I'm sure, in the psychedelic world. 
And, uh, you know, so we have the same set of issues, just looks a little bit different. You know, I look at McMindfulness, the way, you know, the way they look at Big Pharma. And, uh, you know, it's the same. What do you call, what do you call it? McMindfulness. McMindfulness, sorry. <laughs> the way they look at Big Pharma, you know, and we, we have the same relationship to them. You know, we simultaneously want to say, hey, this can do a lot more than you sell it as being able to do. And B, maybe you need some warning labels on your products. And C, you're charging way too much for this shit that people could get for free, you know. And so, you know, it's it's the same problem, just a, a different, you know, set of players. Well, what's, what's the issues, do you think, with this secular mindfulness movement? You think MBSR? Yeah, like so. So it's not like a lot of people don't get a lot of benefit from MBSR. So that's the mm -hmm. first statement. Just like a lot of people get benefits from big pharma, right? So I was an ER doctor. I prescribed, you know, probably millions of dollars worth of drugs, you know, that helped people. Uh, you know, antibiotics and pain medication sometimes, and anti-nausea stuff, and all kinds of things that cost, you know, crap tons of money, and you know, fancy pressers and all kinds of things. And, um, but yet, you know, had some benefits. Same thing with mindfulness, right? So people learn to see their thoughts as thoughts, deal with their emotions as emotions, learn to sit and calm down, learn some basic skills. Hell yeah, like great. Okay, and by the way, sometimes traditional meditation techniques lead to traditional effects, right? And so when they do, and you're trying to say, oh no, those don't happen, those aren't real, those don't occur, that's not a thing. You know, I literally know MBSR teachers who know nothing about jhanas or insight stages, and yet have had, like they've come to me like, I had this person that said their consciousness was exploding and they had like love flowing up their spine. Like, and I thought they were crazy and I didn't know what to do. And I've been teaching mindfulness for 10 years. Like, yeah, you've been teaching kindergarten for 10 years. And it's really important that people go to kindergarten. And sorry, I just pissed off. Like, I just made a whole nother set of enemies. Sorry, MBSR <laughs> kids, you know, but like, it's really important. I'm thankful for my kindergarten teachers, but like, ooh, that's the breath. That's a thought. That's like kindergarten level meditation, right? You could teach this to a five-year-old and they would get it, right? You know, ooh, you can see a thought as a thought. You can see as experience come and go. They can do this, right? And some of them. And some adults can do it too, <laughs> a few. And, um, but like traditional meditation techniques also come out of a tradition that was designed to produce some wild ass experiences. And sometimes that happens in even strangely low doses. And these people either you know, pretend it doesn't happen or just literally are taught nothing about it or like want to say it never happens or no, they couldn't possibly be causing any of this. And they don't want warning labels on their products, just like Big Pharma doesn't want warning labels on their products. Yes, by the way, some small percentage of people, even in nearly homeopathic doses of meditation, will cross the arising and passing away, will hit the dark night, will have magical powers, will see spirits, will lose their fucking minds, period. And, and sorry, that's just true. And I have case data to show this. So bringing forward some of that is also what I'm you know, gonna be doing. And they're not gonna like that, just like Big Pharma doesn't like it when some other study comes out and say, oh, by the way, this drug can cause heart disease or this drug can cause you know, diabetes or this drug can occasionally cause this terrible thing you know, that makes your head fall off or whatever. And even if it's only one in 50,000 times, it's worth knowing that, that yeah. right? We, we still can't your head, right? You know, so, or whatever it is. I'm, there's no drug that makes your head fall off, sorry. <laughs> but there are drugs that cause weird things like rare, rare occasions, like even amoxicillin, right? Like you give some kids, you know, some amoxicillin, like a one in 100,000 chance of a fatal anaphylactic reaction you know, bad allergic reactions, not that common, but it happens and we put that warning label on the package because that happens, right? Tylenol or, you know, paracetamol as you would call it here, 
right? It's the most common cause of fatal overdose in the US until I think finally fentanyl and heroin have finally managed to, to kick it out of its number one slot. But it's, you know, it's deadly stuff if you take more than about, you know, depending on your weight, 10 to 14 grams of it. But otherwise, it's a great headache medicine. It's my headache, you know, it's my pain medicine of choice. When I've got some little, you know, sprained ankle or whatever, I take 500 milligrams of Tylenol, cool. But by the way, don't overdose it, it'll kill you from liver failure, like, bad idea. And so like that warning label is on the thing, right? And in the same way, McMindfulness does not want that. They literally want to pretend this never does any harm, this never launches people in traditional meditation territory, there's no reason for them to acknowledge that world exists or learn anything about it, it's too woo-woo for them, it blows their whole secular model, it's territory they don't want to handle because it's spiritual and it's weird and it's kundalini and it's chakras and it's energy and they don't know what the fuck all that is, right? And so sorry, I'm just kind of ranting here, but like that's, they don't want to deal with that. They just want to get money from insurance companies and help people, you know, recognize their fear as fear, which is cool. I get it, but like it's more than that, and it can be more than that, and sometimes it is more than that. And pretending it's never more than that is just bullshit. And so that's where I come in, and people like me who are like, we're tired of this, and we're tired of cleaning cleaning up the messes of you know meditation teachers who had no idea how the fuck to deal with people who when they're going in weird territory, like because they've either never seen it for themselves, they have no depth in it, or they're trying to pretend it doesn't happen. Or they have financial incentives to, you know, or reputational incentives to sort of dismiss it or attribute it to something else. Or oh, they must have been crazy before. It can't be us, right? And so we we do, you know, we hear all that, and you know, but one way or another, there, you know. So if I have my way, not only will there be warning labels on this stuff, but there will also be the potential to make the stuff so much more. So both true, both much higher potential benefits of real transformations of consciousness based on these techniques that they're teaching people just done well and maybe higher dose for some. And also, by the way, navigating spiritual territory can be some weird stuff and you need to know how to deal with that. That should be a basic cl clinical competency of people teaching meditation. Um, and, and so hopefully helping to promote both of those and the paradigm that um, believes those are true. How, how would you improve this secular mindfulness movement? Well, you know, if, if if somebody said, Daniel, you've got the power, mate, you can change this, because it's, it's a huge industry and there are many benefits. Yeah. But, you know, if somebody said, Daniel, you can sort it out, how would you regulate it or whatever the phrase is? Right. So I'd have reasonable informed consent on the front end of what this stuff can do. It's benefits just like we do for everything else in medicine. So you do risks, benefits and alternatives. So you want to say what it can do that's good and bad, and you want to be honest about that. And you want to have the time to study it so you get prevalence and incidence data, so you have a sense of what are the chances you're going to lose your fucking mind from sitting on a cushion. You know, like, is it, does it happen often? No, it really doesn't. We know this, right? But does it happen occasionally? Yeah, and maybe some people need to know that, right? And when people do lose their minds, we need people who can recognize that, go, okay, this has happened, just like when I give an antibiotic. I know how to handle severe allergic reactions as an emergency medicine doctor. That's why I feel comfortable giving IV antibiotics, because if someone has a really bad reaction, I know what to do, right? And in that same kind, or if I didn't know how to do that, I would know where to send people, right? So when like, you know, I would know, okay, if I can't handle this, I know that there's a whole other world out there of people who do have this level of competency and they would be identified Right? And they would, be, they would know there was a chain you could refer people up. Would we need that often? No, you wouldn't. Most of the time, people are just going to sit there and feel their breath and their knee pain and talk about their childhood and you know, relate to their feelings or whatever, and that's great. But on the rare occasions, or not, you know, sometimes not that rare, but usually pretty rare, when people run into the weird stuff, just like in the world of, of medicine, right? you know if you're working in a little clinic out in the country, 
you can handle a lot of basic stuff. You can handle blood pressure and diabetes and simple back pain and you know stress, and you can handle basic things. But you, you know when you get into something, okay, that's over your head. No, that's chest pain that looks real, like you're sweating. That doesn't look good. You know to call an ambulance and send them to the ER, or the, the A&Es, you would call it here. And in that same kind of way, they just need to wake up and realize there is this other world of secondary and tertiary care for experiences that are outside of their comfort zones and knowledge and competency. And there are people who have competency in those, who know how to handle them, to diagnose them, to treat them, and to help stabilize them. Um, and then if that doesn't work, maybe they need meds. Some people just need meds to be okay, like in the short term, right? And not do something really bad, just like, you know, mental health world. And so, but there's this in-between zone between like, oh, I'm just noticing my thoughts and my breath, and the world of like, you know, we're giving you a big shot of Geodon or Haldol or whatever to calm you down because you cray-cray. There's this world in between, which is weird and kind of complicated, but they don't need like full-on sedation and or meds or interpathological diagnosis, but they need more than an MBSR teacher who knows nothing about altered states of consciousness can give them. And so to fill in that reasonable middle ground with some sense of what's possible, reasonable competencies, reasonable diagnostic criteria, reasonable treatment protocols, that's where I hope to contribute to that conversation. And so that's, you know, the research I'm doing is designed to help lay the sort of case studies and theoretical and foundational groundwork for that kind of thing. So, so it's almost, you know, like yoga or something where you have to have you know, hundreds of hours if you're a good teacher of practice and, and stuff, you might have the same thing for, for MBSR teachers. You have to have done quite a lot of retreats or self-practice rather or, than... Or just know that there are people like, you know, does everybody who's teaching mindfulness to kindergarten kids or, you know, like stressed out CEOs, you know, for 10 minutes of sitting a day or whatever, does everybody need like to know like the hot, you know, a whole ton about the deep end of meditation? No. Like, you can do that on a relatively small amount of training. But do they need to know that there's a whole world out there that does require that kind of training for when you need it? Like in the, in the emergency medicine world, like, or in the medical world, like you have nurse practitioners who are out in you know, the country practicing or out in some little clinic somewhere, and they've got like two years of training or something, and they can handle a lot of stuff, right? A lot of basic stuff they can handle just fine, and they can handle it cheaper and just as well as some highly trained doctor. But you also have ter tertiary and quaternary care so centers, yeah, right? Yeah, with yeah, people with yeah. crazy amounts of training, ridiculous amounts of equipment, depth of experience, and for the for the weird stuff and the bad stuff, that's what you need, right? And so there there needs to be a reasonable sense of that, and to bring that to the world of meditation is what I hope to do. And again, most of the time you don't need that, right? Whereas in the medical world, you do need that more often. But it still needs to be there, and you need to know who these people are. And they need to, hey, let people know, hey, I'm one of these people as well. Like, you know, and you've seen attempt, there have been attempts at this over the years, like the Spiritual Emergency Network by the Grofs, you know, Christina and Stanislav Grof, which has had various incarnations and, you know, risen and disappeared. And I think they're trying to resurrect it again. You know, if people have competency handling weird spiritual experiences and openings. And um, I think the, the mindfulness, sorry, it's just God, I can't help myself. It's so scathing, and I apologize. It's really not fair. They do a lot of good in the world, but the mindfulness industry um, needs to to start to mature and to go. Okay, there is this whole other world out there, and maybe we've pushed the envelope far enough that we can actually talk about it and have the confidence to talk about it and have the confidence to own its roots um, and own both the power of its roots and the peril of its roots. 
And I think, you know, it's been around for, you know, since the 70s or something. Like, you know, you're grown up enough. It's what, 40 something years or whatever. You know, 40 years, I guess, probably this year, actually. I was 79. When did he, John Cabot's going to start doing his thing somewhere around then? Something like that. Yeah. So, like, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the time when you would expect a tradition to be able to kind of mature a little bit and, and own a little bit more and expand out a little bit more past its comfort zones. And so that's what I'm hoping to encourage. So, so what you're saying is that the, the teachers are fine. It's more sense of more of a sense of having a chain where yeah. further down the line, you know, there are, you know, it, it gets more and more sure. competent and experienced. And, and just and, to recognize and so when the weird somebody, whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. And you could tell someone in like 20 minutes, like yeah. what the weird stuff is here. Let me tell you what the weird stuff is right now. If someone has energy blasting up and down their spine, they're seeing bright white lights. They feel like they're having an orgasm for no obvious reason. They feel like they have psychic powers. Their body is shaking and trembling. You know, they're like, they suddenly haven't slept in three days, but they seem to be otherwise moderately okay. They're like, you know, you know, or they're suddenly like they had that and like two or three days later, they're like, why am I so sad and angry or whatever? I mean, that's the impede a dark night cycle, right? And if I could just get that basic spiritual high to spiritual low to eventually get to equanimity with the right support of normalization into this, into the medical and clinical context, I will feel like I have done good in the world. Literally, if I can do that in the next 10 years, if I can accomplish that, I will feel like I have accomplished a miracle. And it's going to take that because there's a lot of resistance on a lot of fronts, not just the scientific materialists and the people who don't like the Theravada maps, despite how obviously useful they are, and the you know the mindfulness people, but you know just people who are from other religious traditions. And this is Buddhism, and we're Christians, or this is Buddhism, and we're Hindus, or this is Buddhism, and we're yeah. So what? They just happen to get this part right. I'm sorry. Like this is just a cool little thing where they just they were really good at describing the phenomenology of it, and people still go through it the same way today that they did then. Like you know, it's like it would be as if like because some Buddhist surgeon had found the gallbladder first that Christians wouldn't acknowledge that there's a gallbladder. Like that would just be friggin' weird, right? I mean, like, and this is that to me, right? And I'm over it. And so my, I'm pretty fired up to, to use um, the enormous gifts I've been given, right? The, all the training I got, the clinical experience I got, the knowledge of the emergency or A&E world um, that I got, the, the research training I have, the opportunity I have in retirement, um, you know, that I can have the time to do these things. And I have the connections. I know a bunch of researchers at a bunch of great institutions. I know literally, I literally know the people who write the major textbooks of emergency medicine. I know, you know, so I have some of that, those ins, right? And, and so to not use that would seem like I was really abdicating my own sense of personal responsibility to, to pay back all the people who helped me um, and to pay forward in getting it so that when people run into these strange experiences in healthcare systems and meditation classes or just in daily life, uh, that they have some basic awareness. Okay, this is a thing, and here's various options for what to do about that thing. And I actually don't really care what people call it, but I do care that people learn about these things and learn to navigate them skillfully and recognize this is just a part of human development that happens to some people. So, so basically just getting them to up their game and improve the quality. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I, th I think part of the the success of the MBSR, the same success of the mindfulness movement, is the fact that it got stripped of any spiritual connotations, air quotes, Buddhist connotations, and yeah. lots of people could get on board with it. When I was first doing all this stuff, and I'm sure it's the same for you, nobody knew the word mindfulness. I, I was a closet meditator. I didn't talk to my mates about it. They just thought it was stupid, you know. Now yeah. it's like, it's just, everybody knows what mindfulness is. Lots of people have tried it and mm -hmm. it's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. Yeah. So it has been immensely successful because yes. of that. Right. 
but I think in a way it becomes a victim of his own success because you you miss the holistic picture of the ethical training and the higher end and the possibilities of problems etc this I'm, I'm just reflecting really on, on absolutely true yep cool generic question <laughs> generic answer why not you know, I always ask a generic question at the end of a podcast what advice would you give to Daniel aged 19 20 years old the younger Daniel you know just starting out on that path Wow. Uh, well, I was already a dark nighter by then. Like, I, I wish I could have told myself about the stages of insight and explained the weird experiences that I'd had as a teenager, right? My A and right, what I would call rising and passing away experiences. I had some weird vortexes of energy, some explosions of consciousness. These things would just happen. Um, they weren't on substances or anything. Uh, and so that would be the most important thing I would say, hey, what you're going through is normal, the sort of weird anxiety and strange dysfunction and feeling called out and weird sense of isolation and oddness about all of that. No, that's a thing. Um, and here's what to do about it. Uh, I would I would love it if I could go back and help an earlier Daniel and lots of other people, right? I mean, you know, my mom, my sister, uh, you know, previous girlfriends I've had who had chanced into this territory when, when they were younger or, you know, in random strange contexts, all kinds of people, friends, uh, people I've met, you know, like if I could go back in time and make people aware of these things, that's, that's the thing I would do. And, and just give them basic and normalizing and even just basic advice, like one, a one page handout would be vastly better than nothing, <laughs> right? That would be, you know, yeah. So that's, that's the, would be the biggest thing I would do. Um, and realize that you literally can change your mind through these practices. Uh, you, you can rewire your brain. You can rewire tendencies and some personality traits. You can re rewire to some degree some emotional responses. You can learn to identify patterns of behavior and thought. You can become less ruminative. Um, you can become uh, more loving and kind. Not that I've perfected any of those things, but you certainly can improve them. Uh, and so uh, that just really can in some convincing way and and that the training is worth it doing this well is worth it it's worth the time if i could have convinced my younger self of that a few years earlier uh that would have probably saved me all kinds of complexity who knows i mean who knows what would have happened maybe i would have ended up being hit by a car because of that i don't know like who knows right it's sort of weird if you go back and screw with time what can happen but like you know all, all other things being equal i would have loved to know about this stuff actually when it first started happening to me when i was 14. was it as, as early as 14 that, or 15 it? somewhere around you're there. just getting a and p experiences yeah really yeah so i was I've told this story before on some podcasts, so if you listen to my other podcasts, you'll have heard this one. But, but I was this kid who um, had flying dreams, and I'd had flying dreams since I was like five, and I didn't always have them, but I really love them when I have them. Have you had flying dreams? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah they're great, aren't they? Brilliant. Yeah, they're yeah, awesome. Yeah. And uh, so I was wanting to have more flying dreams, and I, I don't know where I got this notion, but I thought, wow, I wonder if I practiced having flying dreams before I go to bed, if I could have more of them. It just seemed like a reasonable assumption. Um, I wasn't around meditators, or I was in like, you know, North suburban North Carolina in the you know, early 80s. That was not a, a hotbed of meditative culture, <laughs> to put it gently. Um, yeah. you know? And so I just decided, to, I have no idea where I got this. I just started visualizing these like 50 foot, or I guess you'd be, so you're like, you know, 15, 20 meter, 
you know, planets in space or whatever of various colors. And I would visualize myself flying between them and touching them. So I'd fly up and touch the yellow planet, fly and touch the black planet, fly and touch the white planet, fly and touch the red planet, the blue planet, the green planet. And I, I got better at, better at visualizing this. And this is just over a relatively short period of nights. But I realized that to visualize things well is a real trick. And I have no idea how I like got pretty good at visualizing this because like when I then later tried to visualize, like even when I had some meditative training, I was nowhere near as good as it as weirdly enough I was as a teenager. So I don't know what's up with that. Like I just had the skill for this period of time. But like to learn to visualize well, you have to learn all these things about your mind. You have to learn that like it's tricky. If you, if you put too much effort, you just screw the thing up. If you don't buy in enough, you screw it up. If you like just kind of space out because you're kind of daydreaming into it, you screw it up. Like so this is like finding the right balances of all these factors and realizing there's a slight delay. You intend to visualize and then something visualizing shows up and then you recognize it and you react to it. And sort of notice, noticing the iterative process of visualization in real time as it happens, which is kind of quick, but not that quick. And that apparently was enough meditative skill to get me above the A and P. And then I had this dream where I was on this road and with this bright light everywhere in a spacesuit, and this witch on this horse shot me with a wand, and my consciousness exploded with this brilliant white light. My body was flying in fragments all over my bedroom, and at this point I'm awake, but flying all over my bedroom and sparking fragments. Like, what sense? This and then, is age what? Yeah, I'm like 14 or 15, and I know because the house I was living in. So we moved a lot, so it makes it really easy for me to date my memories because I know which house it occurred in, and we only live, you know, we, we moved all the time. And so uh, I, um, you know, and then my body, my body recombobulated itself and I was like buzzing like crazy and like had this crazy sense like, like felt like my whole body had fallen asleep and was like waking up, you know, like when a foot falls asleep and then it's waking up, it gets pins and needles. My whole body had that. It was actually pretty unpleasant. Um, my first A&P was not an enjoyable experience. It was more just frightening and, and there was nothing blissful about it, unfortunately. <laughs> like sometimes they're just frightening. And, um, and then like, you know, the next night I found myself traveling out of body and like through the wall, you know, of my room and snapping back into my bed. It was my first real out of body travel. That can happen sometimes around that stage. It's not that special. Um, and then I was dark nighty as fuck after that. And I was already an angsty, kind of weird, socially awkward, geeky teenager. Um, you know, it was sort of a somewhat weird family situation, not that weird as they go, but not optimal by any means, whatever that means. Um, and, you know, I was just a stressed out kid. Well, I was more of a stressed out kid after that. And I would continue to cross the horizon and passing away every like a year or two, just random situations, dancing, laying down, sitting on a couch, whatever, like, and, um, and then I would like break up with a girlfriend or wreck my life or quit some program or do something and um, quit a band I was in or whatever it was. And so, cause I would get all renunciate and sort of weird and just kind of hole up in my apartment or not go to class for two weeks or what, you know, whatever dysfunctional thing. And it would have been awesome to have some of that normalized, right? And so that's what I'm hoping to try to do so that people like myself uh, you know, because I've met tons of people who have had these experiences. This is not that strange, right? There are way more people walking around common, yeah. who have had these kinds of experiences than, than people think. Um, I hope to help uh, normalize it and get them some just basic tech. It wouldn't take that long to teach. You could literally teach it in 20 minutes in a high school class or something. You know? Because you know, one of the things, you know, I, mean, I, I know 
you're very much Theravada and you're in Mahasi and it's Buddhism, but I mean, you have a website, Dharma Overground, and you're also very encouraging of any path. There's discussion of any practices in there, yeah, so long as they're wholesome, etc. Yeah. Um, and I refer people out all the time to different traditions and different perspectives constantly, and I do so in my book. Some Buddhists, some not, you know, all kinds of stuff. Uh, and so when people, you know, come to me like or talk to me about this stuff, I very much like figure out what they're into, what they like, you know, what they what their balances are, what their goals are, and try to figure out how they can get something that will be useful for them that works for wherever they're coming from. Because the most important thing, like if it's not something you resonate with, you're not going to do it. If it's not something that has language or a vibe or an aesthetic that you that you care about that inspires you, you're not going to do it, right? And, and so it's way more important to that people find these things because there's a lot of good tech out there. There's a lot of good spirituality. There's a lot of great advice. Like is all of it perfect? No, but my stuff isn't perfect either, right? By any means, right? It's imbalanced. But that's why I try to balance it out by broadening it out, right? And saying no. Sometimes you need maybe go, you know, study, you know, check out Lot Kelly's stuff. You know, he. You know, like, uh, um, you know, Shift into Freedom or, uh, you know, he's got a new book out, um, uh, you know, sort Lot, of... Lot Kelly. Lot Kelly. Or, you know, check out, you know, um, Pema Chodron or check out, you know, um, I Am That by Sri Nazargadana Maharaj or, uh, you know, check out, you know, old school texts for some people or just, hey, like, do more yoga. Like, you know, maybe go do a martial arts class with some skillful where it's, you know, they can teach you to handle your anger and or your power in some skillful way. So I'm constantly referring people to other traditions, you know, or find it in a Christian context. Like I have a bunch of people I've referred, you know, back to, you know, uh, Bernadette Roberts or St. John of the Cross or Interior Castle or, you know, the usual stuff. Uh, um, uh, you know, some of the Christian prayer stuff, uh, Jesus prayer, or, you know, centering prayer, or some of these things can be really helpful for people. And if that's their tradition, that works for them, cool. Like, again, there's lots of good, there's a bunch of, there's this weird mix of like junk and, and good, but like there's plenty of good. And so, you know, I'm, I'm not sectarian when it comes to referring people out. Do I think that there are a few things that, that, that do I think the Theravada maps just are better than everybody else's? Yes. But whenever I say that, nobody else is able to bring up anything that's a reasonable competitor, right? So that, I think that's just true. Like, I think that's just objectively true. The Theravada maps are just better. And, and if, if anybody out there can find maps that can compete with theirs, I would love to know what they are. But I've been looking and I just don't find them. Is everything great about the Theravada? No. Like, I just pissed off all the Theravada. Sorry about that. <laughs> right? Like, it does, there's some things it doesn't do as well. Like... You know, if you want to talk powers, go go into Vajrayana. If you want to talk like embracing your dark side, go into Vajrayana. If you want to talk about like, you know, just sort of loving embodied presence in a really way, maybe you need like a good, you know, ashram, like in a good Hindu guru, because some of them do that way better, right? I mean, it's like, you know, this is, everybody has their strengths, right? Everybody has their things they do well and their things they don't do as well. And I try to be realistic about that. Do I maybe have some biases and shadow sides? Sure, probably like everybody. Am I, perf am I a perfect objective evaluator of everything? No, right? Clearly not. But, but that said, you know, there's, there's something in what I'm saying. Like if you're getting a hyper intellectual, probably you need to go do some Zen, right? They're really good at busting that shit, right? They're, that's their tech. That's their strong suit. They do that well. They get, you know, like hopefully for if the Zen done well anyway, there's bad Zen like anything, right? Um, but, you know, and so like each of these things, like they've got their thing they really specialize in. 
And uh, so I try to like think, okay, this is the strength, this is the weakness, this is the thing. And I've been trying, you know, over decades to come to some balanced approach that, you know, hopefully is relatively ecumenical while recognizing the, the pros and cons. So anyway, and then attempting to apply, you know, apply that to the, where the rubber meets the road of real individual interests and proclivities and talents and cultural conditioning and see how to make something useful out of that. Because you have sort of Western magic and Kabbalah stuff on Dharma Overground as well. From what yeah, I absolutely. Those have some right. very sophisticated yeah. stuff yeah. going on, don't they? Yeah, and, and so that's some cool tech, right? Because th there's some cool magic tech in there. There's some cool magical advice, like reading Magic Without Tears by Crowley is not a bad idea, or reading Dion Fortune stuff. Pretty cool. Like, you know, there's something to be said for doing lesser banishing rituals of the pentagram or like, you know, whatever. There's, a, there's some good tech there, right? It's just all right, you know, cool. And they, there's some things they just do well that you're just not going to find as well in some of the other traditions. How, how can people, the light's gone off on, that's fine. Okay. How, how can people get hold of you, get more of your stuff? You know, if you, what, if you could talk about your websites and your book and any titles and yeah, any, anything so you want to talk about, really. First, go to www.dharmaoverground, D-H-A-R-M-A-O-V-E-R-G-R-O-U-N-D.org, where you can find a whole community of people who, while nothing resembling homogenous, do send, <laughs> tend to kind of sometimes have some sort of attitudes kind of like I do. It's it's a diverse bunch. It's an internet forum, right? It's got thousands of members. So like, you know. Cool. We just had a technical pause there to refuel the, the recorder. So sorry, Dharma Overground. Yeah. So www.dharmaoverground.org, D-H-A-R-M-A-O-V-E-R-G-R-O-U-N-D. So this is a community that, you know, is of thousands of people it's an internet forum so it's kind of the wild west but it's it's dedicated to something like the spirit of open practical practice that works and is willing to talk about the strange stuff and the high end and just to figure this out and kind of brain hack and help each other it's uh, relatively egalitarian um, in that you know there are hierarchies of competence there there are some people who have greater depths of practice but there's not hierarchies of um, sort of authority much. There are a few moderators and you should try to stay in something resembling reasonable form, balance, whatever that is. But, um, and so that's a, an interesting place if you're looking for some fascinating discussions of practice. And there have been some great conversations there mixed into the noise that you find on any internet forum. Uh, but it's a great place. And then there's www. Sorry, I, I would just interject there. And I, I, I'm sorry. Is that microphone? The great thing with Dharma Overground as well is that you, there are discussions about pretty much any practice you yeah. can think about. There, there's Absolutely. magic and Kundalini, etc., etc., etc. Vedanta and Christian, yeah. there's Christian stuff. Christianity, yeah, Islamic stuff, yeah. Yeah, it has some predominance of some Theravadan influence stuff, but you certainly find a great range there, and people tend to be pretty eclectic and have studied a bunch of things. Um, very few people there who are just coming from one tradition or point of view. Uh, and in theogens as well for the you know the, the psychedelic um, yeah. yeah the psychedelic crowd there's some talk discussion of meditation uh, induced ex weird experiences and theogenic or psychedelic induced experiences and um, so and how to handle those and resources and tips and tricks and all kinds of you know things people have figured out and cool things they found and tried and didn't work and did work and and all that and you'll find a a range of uh, beings there, all kinds of different levels of practice, but a wide range and some very impressive practitioners hang out there sometimes. So it's, it's cool to be able to interact with them. And, uh, you know, then there's www.integrateddaniel, 
um, dot info, I-N-T-E-G-R-A-T-E-D-D-A-N-I-E-L dot info. And so that's a website with a range of stuff. You can, and then you can, you can find links to my book there and you can find some other stuff, just sort of things un totally unrelated to meditation, just about my life. You can find some essays and some mind maps and some videos and podcasts I've done and all that stuff. And then there's uh, my book or my main book, which is uh, Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha at www.mctb.org. And you can read the book there for free. The whole thing is there for free. And um, if you wanna buy it, the paper book costs, I don't make that much money on it, but the money I do make from it, I use to help Dharma things. So it doesn't go to me, it goes to you know Dharma Overground server time and helping some other people with some stuff and paying for things Dharmic related. Uh, but I don't spend it on myself because I like to keep money in the Dharma clean. Um, there's also uh, www.firekasina, you know, F-I-R-E-K-A-S-I-N-A.org, where you'll find another free book and a book that you can download if you want the print copy that we don't uh, make any money on. We just simply charge the printing costs. And you'll find all kinds of audio reports of fascinating reports of what the Fire Casino can, um, practice can do, which can get pretty wild. Definitely recommended listening. And uh, all kinds of helpful advice about how to do the practice. Um, we have a whole like three hour or something, I can't remember how long it is, frequently asked questions section, uh, which is cool. And uh, tell you all about it and the free book there. And a lot of cool wisdom uh, beings have contributed to that. Uh, things you'll find a diversity of voices and experiences there, uh, which is just helps round out and normalize the practice. And so those are some resources I would recommend. And those places give you links to all kinds of other sites that are also valuable. So um, I don't need to mention all those. You can find them there. Any good books you'd recommend for people who are starting out? Wow. I mean, it's a tricky question. I really like A Path with Heart by Jack, Jack Kornfield. Kornfield. It's just a classic. It's just just read it recognizing that he's giving you all kinds of cool map tech and really um, sophisticated practices and all kinds of things rather than just thinking it's a nice kind of interesting flowy description of stuff. It's written so nicely you could miss what it is. Don't miss what it is. Um, what else do I look? I like uh, um, Mindfulness in Plain English by Bhante Gunaratana. That's a great one. Um, if you're looking for something a little more like deep dive stuff, you could check out um, A Map of the Journey, uh, which is an interesting book. That's one I have forgotten to mention, but it's actually really good core Buddhist tech. And uh, so, but it goes into a little bit more advanced stuff as well. Who's, um, who's written that? Oh, I'm bad with names. and I'm going to feel so bad for forgetting mm -hmm. this. You should edit this out. But uh, Ujodaka, maybe? Okay. Um, Ujodaka. I can't. God. I do, one one of the Burmese. That's, that's not. We'll yeah, find anyway, it. but a map, the of, map the of the journey. You'll find, you'll find it. it. Yeah, bad with names. I'm sometimes glitchy that way. My bad. Uh, it's a good book. I should I shouldn't be forgetting. Um, uh, what else do I like? I like uh, Loving Kindness: The Revolutionary Art of Happiness by Sharon Salzberg. Um, that's a good one. Uh, just loving kindness practices. Highly recommended. Always a good time. Like you know, and the other three. So um, practices of compassion and sympathetic joy and equanimity that help balance them out. Um, good practices, highly recommended. Uh, what else is good? I don't know, that, that's, a, that's a fine start. Like, I, I could go on and on. If you go to these websites, uh, particularly my website, I have a long book list of possible things you could read just depending on what you're into. Uh, and in my book references, I don't know, probably, I'm not sure how many other books, a lot. So if you look at my book, you'll find by sections, all kinds of other good recommendations in the text for 
you know, further reading on topics you might find useful. What's your advice to anybody that you've mentioned a lot? You know, there's, there's a rising and passing away, people having weird experiences, and weird stuff's going in their life, maybe it's not going so well. Where, where do they go from here? Yeah, so there I'm just going to recommend my book straight out. Yeah. I'm going to unabashedly highly recommend chapter 30 of Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha, second edition revised and expanded. Chapter 30 is where I talk about a lot of basic tech of how to handle that. I give tons of advice there. Just read it. It's it's pages and pages and pages of stuff. I can't duplicate it all here. Um, Just find that and read it. It will reference some other books. Uh, Path with Heart is also good. Um, uh, The Spiritual Search for the Self by uh, Christina and Stanislav Groff is actually some good normalizing material done long before I got there. Um, So also uh, good stuff and... um, so, yeah, that's, that's going to be some of your better resources just to start, and then they'll send you in some other directions. Um, both A lot of those resources reference lots of other books that are valuable. And people who are just starting out there, they're interested in spirituality, they don't know where to go, what do they do, meditate, retreats, any advice? Yeah. I know a, that's broad. A path with heart. Just, path with yeah, heart. Yeah, that's, that's kind of my spiritual go-to. It's kind of new agey, it's kind of woo-woo, it's kind of nice it's kind of mushy in places but it's also great and there's a lot of deep wisdom in there um and it's a lot of just good basic meditation exercises and good stuff also shinzen young like check out his stuff like it's it's secular it's very sort of clean it's very um but it's still powerful tech if you if you used it well um like five ways to know yourself is a good book or you know so some of that tech is is um, if you like that more stripped down, non-woo-woo stuff. Uh, so that's some, a useful place to go. And in terms of just what to do, you know, go on a Gwenka retreat, do an MBSR. Yeah, do, so unfortunately, like, the, here's the problem. Like, everybody's different. Different strengths and weaknesses, different goals, different cultural resonances. Literally, when I have that conversation, it's an hour conversation. Like, to really do that well is complicated. And so it's hard to give generic advice. You have to figure out what works for you, what you're going to handle well, what you're going to relate to in some skillful, mature way, what's going to meet your needs, what you can afford, what what cultural trappings you can tolerate and or appreciate and or love. Um, you know, it's it's a complicated question. Everybody's different. I, 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 you know, everybody wants, oh, just, just tell me to do this thing. Well, I don't know how to do that because I don't know what's going to work for you particularly. You're different from everybody else. And yeah, there's some, some commonalities. And yeah, retreats tend to make practice better, but which retreats, you know, and there are some techniques that may be faster than others, but fast is not always good, right? Sometimes integrating along the way is better, you know, and some people fast is just destabilizing and irritating and crazy making or, you know, suffering producing. You know, so like, and some people like fast and they don't care if they're suffering a lot along the journey. And some people really want something gentle and heart opening. And some people want more embodied and physical. And some people want more service related. And some people really want a lot more prayer or ritual. And some people, you know, there's no way I can know. And so I, d- I don't know what to tell people except start looking around, looking at some of these resources, figuring out what you like, um, what it seems to lead to, and what it reproducibly leads to in modern times not what they just sort of advertise but actually say okay this literally does this and we have living examples of this and there are people you would kind of want to be like not that you will necessarily become that way in personality but you will may become like them in some way if you do a whole ton of the practices they did right and so 
you know, just um, and, and sorting that out is complicated, right? And and one teacher that somebody loves will just leave somebody else totally cold. Like there's some people who just look at me and the way I language stuff and present stuff, and they just hate it. They just like that's not their thing, and I get that. That's fine. I understand, right? And so it's great. There's a pretty good range out there these days, right? You know, and luckily there's all, all these different voices, of all these different qualities, giving out some pretty quality dharma. And yeah, there's plenty of shit too. But keep your wits about you. Be real. You know, be honest. Be human. Uh, you know, be skeptical of really ridiculous promises. Not that some of them might not be true, but a lot of them won't be. Um, be unbelievably skeptical. Skeptical of anybody who says they have like emotional perfection or they'll always do the right thing, or they're 100% transcended craving, just be really wary of that shit, right? It's not like sometimes good things can't hang come from hanging out with people who say stuff like that. Some of their tech may be good too. They may have their own skills at guiding people to whatever, but those are some red flags. Um, yeah, be, you know, in general, I have a pre preference for people who keep it more real and down to earth while still reaching for the stars. Yeah, now I sound like some terrible TV show advertisement, but like, you know, it's still true. Anyway. Brilliant, brilliant. A anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, don't have sex with your Dharma teachers. <laughs> Fair play. Sorry, not, like, not that consulting consenting adults shouldn't be able to do what they want to do, but uh, it usually goes badly. Yeah, and there's, there's been quite a string of that yeah. in the last few years. I, I don't mean to be to like that. all, you know, morally conservative or like mm. whatever but seriously it just usually goes badly mm. usually people just get hurt and disillusioned yeah and there's been quite a few scandals in yeah. the last few years of it, abuse really it just into, makes it, it just mm. makes a mess most of the mm. time I'm, I'm sure there are people who have had sex with their dharma teachers and it was all fine mm. but um yeah just yeah stop the crazy be careful Thanks. with it yeah yeah, yeah. my best yeah. advice brilliant Daniel, listen, thank you so much for taking the time and covering huge areas of fascinating stuff. So, yes, it's been delightful. Yeah, it's been so but, much fun. Yeah. I, I hope this is useful to somebody. And if and if you don't find it useful, find it somewhere else. Absolutely. Again, yeah. like you don't have to like my stuff. I'm fine with that. Yeah. But there is good stuff out there. Brilliant. No, absolutely. No, thank you so much, Daniel. Brilliant. Okay, so that was going to be the end, but sorry, I just had to ask one more question. So in the really properly last part, Daniel will be talking about the effect his Arahat announcement had on the wider spiritual world. It's only 15 minutes, so do tune in. So yeah, another question is that post your coming out saying I'm an Arahat and it caused a lot of controversy, I certainly feel the world of the Dharma has changed. Perhaps I've perceived that incorrectly, but people are more open and people are talking about attainments and there are there is an awareness that there's an awful lot more realised people out there than we thought. What's your thoughts on that, whether it's made a difference or not? Have you noticed a difference? Yes, uh, clearly. So it, it's I, I don't mean to be needlessly any more arrogant than I already am, but the, doing this crazy thing that I did did change the conversation. And while it pissed a lot of people off, it did give other people some cover and normalization and some support, just like for coming out of the closet, right? So just like in, you know, in the gay world, uh, coming out of the closet, uh, you know, when, when famous people do it, it helps, right? And, and so it gives other people cover and normalization to do the same kind of thing. And plenty of people who were very, very closeted or semi-closeted or, you know, uh, came out in ways that are 
are, you know, I really am happy about that. Now, is it true that everybody who then made a claim to have whatever attainment really has what they have? I think there's evidence that not everybody either got that right or was entirely honest. Okay, so that's the downside, right? So that's that's the problem, but you know, that's complicated. Uh, but that's what happens with any sort of open disclosure of things like this. Uh, but would I rather have the conversation be open and people like having the honest conversation in the open to the degree that they're comfortable with, rather than it just being entirely closeted and entirely hidden, which it basically was before, or only talked about in like whispered, maybe so-and-so is a so-and-so, like, you know, they did with Achan Cha or whatever, uh, you know, or, you know, just subtle hints, you know, or, you know, rumors, but, you know, people won't talk about it, or it's all by title, and it's only the people with fancy titles or fancy hats that might actually have deep practice you know, the, only the people on the front cushion that have, might have deep practice, but they won't say anything. You know, that led to just so much projection and fantasy and delusion and then exploitation and transference and counter-transference. It was just so unhelpful. And I, and I am very much a, let's just talk about this stuff. And yeah, it's gonna be messy sometimes. And yeah, there are gonna be problems, that's true. But I really think the open dialogue about it is better than what was going on before and a lot of people have come to that same conclusion and that's allowed a lot of people to help people and a lot of people to aim higher and a lot of people to be inspired to claim some of their own wisdom and so i think it's in general been positive though has it been all positive 100 percent no but that's everything in this black and white you know this world that has black and white aspects two sides to every coin right that's that's just the nature of this reality so and could we possibly do it better yeah maybe i don't know but that's part of the ongoing conversation uh, is trying to figure that out. But that said, like, you know, someone had recently asked me, like, would I out some people who have come to me and say that, you know, they're awakened or whatever when they don't want to be? No, like very much like I have gay friends who I wouldn't out. I, I, would, you know, I would never do that to them. Uh, in the same way, people who in confidence have told me they have whatever, can do whatever, experience whatever. Um, if that's in confidence, I just keep that in confidence. And so, you know, um, might talk about things generically, but would never talk about them in specific. I, I think also there's there's been you know with the internet and everything that there's been a rise of just that conversation generally. You know, Rick Archer, Buddha at the gas pump, talking to a lot of people. Who yeah, are, you know, quite openly saying, yeah, we have these realization, conscious TV. There's there's a lot of stuff now on the internet where people. Sure not making any bones about it. They're not necessarily putting a name to it, but they're saying, yeah, this this is my reality. This is what's happening. This is my tradition. This is... And suddenly there's a sense of, yeah, rather than this being this incredibly rare, pretty much impossible thing to achieve, suddenly there seems to be a lot of people out there who've gone a long way down the line and maybe it is attainable and maybe it's it's, it's cause for hope for a lot of a lot of people. That's definitely true. And, th and that effect is clearly real. I, I think... From my point of view, the experiment is done and the potential for being open and having that not be too much of a problem clearly empowers a reasonable number of people to come into their own power and take responsibility for their own practice and uh, be really um, uh, licensed to give it a real shot. And again, that doesn't always go well. It doesn't, it's not like it doesn't, you know, the striving or the goal-oriented stuff can't cause all kinds of problems if done wrong, it really can. So that's the other side of that coin. But that said, I think it's kind of like growing up in the world of sports. You know, as 
sort of, you know, as younger, immature kids, we can get really angry when we aren't the first in the race, or we can get really angry when our team doesn't win, or we can get really competitive or sort of mean-spirited or harsh or kind of, but then hopefully as people become more mature in playing sports, um, they learn to just appreciate the game and the fun of it. And yeah, sometimes they win, sometimes they lose, but, but the, it's, the, it's the game itself that is the fun thing. And I think the people who have the best relationship to it, they just love to practice and explore. They love to learn, they love to grow, they love to try it. And that level of sportsmanship when it comes to um, the world of meditation that has levels or ranks or whatever you want to, you know, or just things you can learn to do. Uh, you know, there's a level of sportsmanship that people can learn. And the people who say, no, we can't, we can't give Westerners the maps because they'll just be so competitive and strivey. Well, that's just not true. That does that really under, um, that really dismisses and discounts the possibility of people to, to have, develop a mature relationship to these things. And I don't like that kind of secretive paternalism at all. Um, I just think it's really unskillful. And so I've, I've tried to model what I would want, which is people to tell me honestly what they can do, what they can't do, what they've experienced, and let me figure out how to do it myself, hopefully with some of their help, but hopefully not with some weird, unskillful relationship to them that's all based on rim, rumor and innuendo and speculation and transference and fantasy, right? I mean, who did that really help? Like, I don't mean to rag on an entire generation of the boomers, but like, how well did that go? You know, like you did the experiment. How'd that go? How'd that turn out for you? Yeah, how's it working out? For right? You? Yeah. <laughs> like, really? That's that's the best you got. Are you sure? Yeah. Okay. Like yeah. maybe, yeah. yeah, maybe not. Do, so. do, do, do you think, as you know, as we do more work, you know, like you're doing, we're doing a lot of neurobiology, we're doing a lot of research, like you're doing, and there's a psychedelic guys doing the research. Do you, you know, even though this text thousands of years old, do you think it will? it will morph and change oh yeah there's still stuff to be modernized we're still figuring stuff out there's still innovation that can occur there's still better phenomenology there's still better classification of experiences that can occur there's still better combinations of techniques there's still i'm sure of that like we're an innovative fascinating bunch i mean there's some really smart remarkable people who are now meditating and engaged with this stuff and already the cool stuff that's come out you know, of neat, better ways to phrase it or better, you know, better combinations of things or better algorithms for who does what when or, you know, just better reports from the field to inform what's going on with the openness and cross-pollination we have between traditions. We have opportunities now that haven't existed since like Nalanda, you know, back in the day, which is this Buddhist university, you know, about a thousand years ago or more, where there was this incredible cross-pollination of various traditions, and you had wandering sadhus and Vajrayanists and to you know sort of you know Shaiva Tantra people and Theravadan Buddhists and all kinds of other Buddhist strains that don't even exist anymore, and you know all kinds of interesting people like talking to each other and learning each other's tech and and competing and debating and and having all the fun interactions that people do, but it's kind of like mixed martial arts, like you know it's like mixed martial arts is just better you just you just put anyone who's trained in like one fighting style except maybe shaolin sorry like or whatever like in a in a ring with a mixed martial artist they're just going to kill you they like, they're, yeah, yeah. they're going to beat you up but because they have now the benefit of all these different fighting styles and they got to kind of pick from the best of those 
right? It's just, sorry, that, that's just gonna work out well most of the time. And we have the opportunity now in the same way. Again, I don't mean to, alien, I've just alienated more people by using a violent analogy. It's like my, my, my greatest life skill is pissing people off with the wrong political things to say, right? <laughs> so, but it's part, of CV, my, yeah. part of my pathology and charm. So anyway, but it's true, like, you know, and so like, um, you know, learning those diversity of techniques and being able to really tailor stuff and have a range of stuff because people are different. We're not all the same. And I think just like you need different medicines for different medical conditions, I think there are different practices and, and vibes and, you know, ways of phrasing things that work for different people. And I think that's beautiful. I'm really excited by the diversity. So, But I, I think just, just to circle this back to where this question started, I mean, it strikes me that it's again it's extremely important that people are having open dialogues about this because yeah. when people are regularly saying oh that worked for me that didn't work for me i got here with that i didn't get here with that you can compare and contrast can't you and you can get some progress with that whereas if sure. it's all in the closet that's never going to happen do you think that's right that's totally true and and also recognizing that just because one person got something out of something doesn't mean you will and just because one person tried something and didn't really work for them doesn't mean it won't necessarily work for you and having a range of data points, like not just one other friend, but like a whole bunch of them, you know, tens, hundreds of reports of, and then you can sort of go, okay, in general, like here are the sort of generalizations we can make. Like, you know, these practices kind of are more likely to do this and this kind of person may be more likely to do that. And that's the kind of experience that led even to the commentaries, right? It's where you get this range of, and the old texts where they had this great range of the experiences of what people would get into back in the day. And some people got powers and some people didn't. Some people really good at genre, some people not. Some people really good at analytics, some people really good at ethics, some people really good at, you know, whatever thing. And, um, you know, some people were just really kind and healing and helpful and, and loving. And there, so, and, and you, you get that sense, this leads to that. And back in the day, it was clear, hey, if you wanted to learn this, go study with these people. They're really good at that. Or if you wanted to learn this, okay, this is a really good, you, you would go talk to these, this group of, you know, the, the people back in the day. And, and that was like in the early Buddhist Sangha. And you see that today, right, where people have different things they like and resonate with. And I'm really excited that those options are now much more open and public. Oh, no, you know, the Buddha was famous for tailoring his teachings, wasn't he, to Absolutely. somebody, you know, that, yeah. that kind of meditation is, yeah. there was the famous one about the guy who was a jeweler who wasn't getting anywhere with his stuff, he obviously had a great sense of aesthetics, so he gave him this very wonderful visualisation of flowers and stuff, which I just thought was a lovely example of tailoring it, and what I'm driving at with that, I, I wonder if, it, you know, there's a there will be a point where we have so much tech and knowledge about what goes on that you you could even sort of tailor it you could sit like you said about Absolutely. i'd have an hour conversation yeah. you could go you know you could have a sort of a, a pro forma that you could go you like this you like that oh yeah yeah i think i think for now you'd be really good for that but a year down the line we'll change it you know you could really tailor it couldn't you absolutely and and you know assuming we don't uh, burn the planet up first but yes <laughs> but yes these are the things i dream of with again the caveat, but with the caveat that we need to make sure we preserve this little <laughs> blue marble spaceship we're all on it's particularly um, dharmic well yeah <laughs> well you know i mean keeping it real right i mean like impermanence you know and suffering yeah, important yeah. to remember these things yeah, yeah. so and uh, important to be motivated like to not just sit on a cushion and work on ourselves but try to make sure this is a world that's safe for practice and safe for humans right what what, what is i know that this could we could be here for yeah, hours, you could. But, but what is your thoughts on climate change and the dharma and you know it's it's a, it's an ending it's an, an impermanence what's your thoughts 
Yeah, I think that um, I think we need to make some really big changes really quickly, and those are going to be painful, and people are not going to like that. So I'm very much toward that side of the spectrum, and I think it's probably at least partly too late for some of it. Some of the I see reasonable amount of scientific evidence and papers that show we've maybe have crossed some tipping points that we can't actually reverse easily. Maybe not at all. Maybe not for tens or hundreds of thousands of years or something. You know, like some of these big cycles of climate go. And um, so I'm moderately pessimistic, but that doesn't mean that I still don't do stuff. I still do. So I'm still motivated even in the face of my pessimism. It doesn't mean that you should necessarily adopt my views. These are just my views. I claim to be no climate expert. Meditation expert, yes. Climate expert, no. So just because I know one thing well doesn't mean I know another thing well. But I, I am a scientist and I try to keep up with the literature and I have a pretty you know, heavy amount of training in, in physics and, and, you know, uh, data analysis and things. And so when I look at this stuff, I go, yeah, we're kind of screwed, dudes, like if we don't do a lot now. So I would, you know, again, some of my friends just hate political dharma, but this is just one person's political opinion, right? It doesn't have to be tied to the dharma since you asked the question. Like, I think if we want a place to practice the dharma, we need to seriously change how we're taking care of this planet. And yeah, otherwise it's gonna be a real mess and it might be a real mess anyway. Is there a good dharmic approach? I mean, one of the things that is happening, I mean, there's all sorts of takes on climate change. A lot of people are angry, a lot of apathy, but a lot of people are just depressed and feel impotent. And, you know, would you would you advise a, a more a dharmic approach to this situation? I don't know that I mix the dharma and politics in that kind of way. It's an I internal just, thing. Well, yeah, I mean, it's not that there aren't skillful actions and stuff. I just don't, for me, I literally don't think of it in that context. That doesn't mean that anybody else shouldn't. I have a lot of eco-dharma warrior friends, okay, more power to them, whatever. They really do phrase their their ecological warriorship or their politics in dharmic terms. Weirdly enough, I don't. So I just frame it in like, I really like a reasonable planet to live on without like massive climate refugees and things like water. Like, I'm a fan, you know, and so like not flooded cities, not like, you know, so hot, like I can't stand it, not like, crop you know, crop failure and ticks all over the damn place and mosquitoes and all that shit. Like, I don't want all that stuff, period. Like, you, this is, you can call it Dharma, you can just call it my opinion, <laughs> whatever, <laughs> or just a good idea, right? <laughs> However you want to phrase it. Like, and so like, I'm trying to figure out how to get rid of my car and the car I do have is a Prius and I'm like, you know, trying to figure out like, do I really need to eat that? Do I really need to fly there? Like, you know, and and do how am I gonna like support the political candidates that I think are going to be less likely to burn this crap, this you know, this crazy world to the ground, you know, sooner rather than later? And how do I figure out, you know, how to how to you know be a reasonably engaged citizen and still try to be part of the public discourse, like hopefully I'm doing now. Um, and I don't know, I don't have anything like the answers. I don't think we've ever faced anything quite like this before as a species. And I think we're kind of proving we sort of suck at it. Um, but that doesn't mean we can't figure it out. We've figured out all kinds of other shit. So maybe we can figure you out can this. Knife I don't know. Laptop, yeah, it's pretty like, impressive, right? So, you know, so like, why can't we? Why can't we? So it? I don't know. So we'll see. Um, but, you know, uh, I would uh, try to make what changes you can, whatever that means. I don't know what that means. Everybody's different in terms of their capacities and their willingness to to modify their lives. 
Um, you know, and am I perfect in every way? No, like I still fly in planes some, you know, like I still like do things that like, you know, are helping to destroy the planet. I'm a top predator. Just my mere existence on this planet means a, a relatively amount, high amount of carnage and death, even if I'm just eating vegetables, right? That's, that's just a fact. And, you know, I try to own that and be honest about that. But um, are there some things I can do? Yeah, there's some things I can do. And so I try to do those things. Anyway. There's, there would certainly be an argument for, and there is an argument going around that engaging in the three trainings, the ethical training, the renunciation would, would be of benefit generally if a lot of people yeah, did that. Right, yeah, less SUVs. Less greed, less... Yeah, less greed. Know. Yeah, sure. I, clearly less greed would be darn helpful. Yeah. Right, that, that would be a fundamental thing. If we could reduce the degree to which people are defining themselves by their McMansions or their McSUVs or their whatevers. Their acquisitions, absolutely. Yeah, their acquisitions and their, their crap they don't need. You know, it's not like I don't have a few nice things I do, you know, whatever. Um, but, you know, um, you know, we're trying to figure out how to reasonably minimize that and still sort of be okay and still, you know, buy those things that allow you to continue to maintain the capabilities to make this world a better place, right? So... Um, and that empower you to, you know, be in a mind state to help and to be okay, yeah, to the degree that we're pos it's possible. Um, but, you know, can uh, 8 billion people live a middle-class Western lifestyle with current resources? No, period. We don't have that tech yet, and we may never. Um, and I don't think we have, you know, do we have a decade or two? I don't know. We'll yeah, find out. We're about to find out. Say, yeah. <laughs> we're doing it. We're gonna know soon enough. Exactly. <laughs> it's gonna be an interesting ride. Yeah. Anyway, so but uh, do what you can. Um, watch funny cat videos if you need to. <laughs> Get by. <laughs> Whatever. Absolutely. On that note, thanks again, Daniel. All right. Bye. <laughs>